2: Encouraging younger generations and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk860, and Womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco. And I'm thrilled to be back in the studio this afternoon after a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with with my family and friends, and I hope you all enjoyed uh, a wonderful day also. Uh, I'm very excited about my very special guest this afternoon who will be joining us in just a moment. She's live with me in the studio, which I always love. Uh, Before we get started, um, I want to give a quick uh, mention uh, uh, for one of our sponsors, Mount St. Joseph Academy. Uh, The Mount community is celebrating their annual Women as Founders this week, from November 27th to December 1st. Uh, Women as Founders Week honors the accomplishments of women and encourages students to be founders in their own unique ways. And there's a special event every day of this week. It's it's a very special week for the girls at the Mount. To learn more about it, you can go to msjacad.org. That's msjacad.org, O-R-G. And if you're listening this afternoon, and you'd like to call in and ask a question for our guests this afternoon we'd love to hear from you you can do so by dialing 888-329-3306 that's 888-329-3306 so now I'm very excited to welcome our our guest this afternoon and her name is Cecilia Fitzgibbon Cecilia is the president of the Moore College of Art and Design here in Philadelphia Cecilia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sue. It's very nice to have you. And I, I guess we first met at an event um, a couple of months ago for the, the, Walnut Walnut Club. Club, yes. uh, the Walnut Club, a wonderful women's networking group here in Philadelphia. And uh, I'll give a quick shout out to my brother, Mark Foley, who happens to be <laughs> your neighbor. <laughs> so we had something uh, something in common. And um, as we always do, I'd love to start out a little bit with your younger years and your upbringing and find out more about the young Cecilia And um, a little bit about what your aspirations were as a young girl, as the oldest of four, I believe. Yes, Yes. four,
3: yes. Um, So being the eldest, of course, I was the boss, inherently. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to tell people what to do. Um, (laughs) But uh, my dad was a pressman at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and my mom was a secretary. And I was the first kid in my, my family to go to college. Yeah, And now I'm a college president. So how funny is that? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but life comes out in, in very mysterious ways. It does. So my, my mother went to Moore. She took courses at Moore. And she had this book of art in, in the ages. And we used to look at it as children. And I thought there could be no other beautiful place in the world, but a place, a world surrounded by art. Mm. That was my inspiration. Yeah, uh, She did not graduate for more, but um, she set us all on the right path.
2: Yeah. Are your siblings brothers,
3: sisters, both? I have two sisters and a brother. My brother is the youngest. Okay. My sisters are were both involved in the arts. Um, my sister, my youngest sister has a degree in directing from Brown. And so somehow we all found some inspiration from that book.
2: Yeah. Now tell me about your high school years. What kinds of activities were you involved in outside of art?
3: High school? Oh boy. Um, Well, I was... The very defining years for a young woman. For for sure, for sure. I was the um, editor of the features editor of our high school newspaper, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm not very athletic, so that wasn't part of the scene. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was a member of the National Honor Society and also a member of the the History Club. That was my last interest in history, as I recall. (laughs) Um, um, But you know, it's so funny that you ask that, because I remember very well two teachers and how influential they are. And really, I think if we all stop for a moment, we could name those two people who really set us on the course. Um, and these folks, of course, I'm certainly not in touch with them, but they remain embedded in my memory about how inspiring they were.
2: Was there something one of them said to you that stays with you?
3: You know, it's so funny. Mr. Grosvenor uh, stood on the desk and recited the Declaration of Independence. And it seemed to me as if anyone who could capture a crowd like that was someone to be emulated. So uh, I, I thought, this, this man is inspiring. Mm. Now, I read that you moved as a sophomore in high school. Yes. In the middle of my sophomore year, we left um, New Jersey, where I was growing up, and we went to Massachusetts. And I, start, I went to uh, a town in Massachusetts where everyone had gone to grade school with each other. So I was definitely the new kid. I remember my mother made me wear a yellow dress. So there was no hiding in the crowd that day. It was <laughs> I was definitely the new kid. But yeah. uh, I think, you know, there's a case of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, um, And you have to find your people when you go to a new environment. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it, it made the difference in terms of my education, because from there I could go to UMass, whereas... Um, I would not perhaps have had the advantages that I did b- by being in Massachusetts.
2: Yeah, so that that's hard. As a sophomore, you're probably 14, 15? Yes. 14 years old. And really, to start over in a new place, was. tell me about the high school. Was it a, a public, private, it, it girls? Was a,
3: it was a public regional high school okay. of three towns. Like I said, all three of those towns, those folks went to one-room schoolhouses at the time, and then they'd come to this regional high school. So um, the good news was that it was three separate towns, so they didn't—not everyone knew each other. But high school's tough for anybody. It is.
2: It is. I I think particularly for young women and and perhaps at that time— you know you're just trying to find your way and and figure out what not only what you want to do in life right the question is always what do you want to be when you grow up but really who you are and um, but it sounds to me as if you you know the art world for you was ingrained as a child because of your mom and it was something you pursued Um, tell me about your college years and and what you
3: were looking to do during those years. Well, it's interesting that you say about the art world. Never once did I expect or um, think that I would be an artist. So it's really important for people to know I'm not an artist. I'm inspired by the arts. Yes. And so when I went to college, I became a member of the Arts Council at the University of Massachusetts. We were the folks that would pick groups that would come to the campus. Now, UMass has 30,000 people, kids in it, students, I should say. And um, so that was a big job and one that was very inspiring to me. Before I left New Jersey, I was very active even as a 15-year-old in anti-war protests for the Vietnam War. Mm. Then going to Massachusetts, of course, in the small town, it was unclear whether anybody knew what was going on in the world. So it was a it was an adjustment. Then I went to UMass, and um, <clears throat> my high school guidance counselor had said to me, there is a college called Radcliffe, which you should go to. It was an all-women's college associated with Harvard. Um, and I looked at her and said, do you know what my father does for a living? I can't afford it. So oh. instead, I went to UMass. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's part of me that regrets not having go, gone to Harvard as, as an undergraduate, but that's all right. It turns out okay.
2: Would you have had an opportunity for any type of scholarship?
3: Well, had I known that scholarships existed, mm. I would have. But being the first uh, person in my family to go to college, no one told me about scholarships. And so I did what I could do. My father, in the, this is in the 70s, <clears throat> gave me $300. And said, "Here's your college. This this is for you for college. Oh, the okay. rest was on, up to me."
2: Yeah. Did you work during this? Of years? course, yes. yes. Tell me about. Tell me what oh. was the first job you had? <laughs> very first. Um, we would uh, never forget that very first job.
3: <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah. So it was serving food in the in the dining hall, of okay. course. Yeah. And um, I used to slip some friends. They were extra hungry, so we would take care of them. (laughs) Secretly. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Now, I know that you spent um, many years um, at Drexel University. You were a professor and also the head of the art department there. Um, Was there a, a time between graduating from UMass and taking on the role at Drexel?
3: Oh, sure. Yes,
2: tell me about those years.
3: Well, I went to graduate school at NYU mm-hmm. um, in arts administration, and this was a very new field at the time. It's basically teaching people how to run arts organizations. So, um, and when I told my dad about this, he said, What do you want to do that for? The arts are for rich people. And I said, No, dad, the arts are for everyone. So I did my graduate work and Manhattan, it was a quite an experience, but one that I can check off the list now. <laughs> been there and done that. <laughs> yes, I have, <got>, yes. <laughs> and when I graduated, I worked in Manhattan for a while mm-hmm. and became the director of the Delaware State Arts Council from there, which I did happily for nine years. So I've been really lucky. I've had three dream jobs in my life. Yeah. And that was the first one. Um and so then I was qualified to go to Drexel to teach because I had run cultural organizations. Okay. And so I, I was at a point where we were, we were, when I got there, we were well, 20, 20th in the country in per capita funding for the arts. Mm-hmm. And during the period of time that I was there, because of the hard work of the state legislature, we became third in the country in per capita funding for the arts. A lot of it has to do with Capita. Delaware doesn't have that many people. Yeah. But but really, there was a commitment in the 80s uh, about the connection between arts and culture and the quality of life in the state. I mm-hmm. was very fortunate.
2: Yeah. Was your experience in this field uh, working mostly with
3: women? No. It was with everyone, um, but focused on the arts. Um, really... As a self-proclaimed feminist at the time, I was having kids and doing all those family things, so the feminism kind of got put on the back burner. And as the state arts agency director, I was working with um, artists. That was the focus, men or and women.
2: I would love to hear about what you just described as being a self-proclaimed <laughs> feminist. <laughs> well, I, yeah, what, what, what? Um, motivated you to to get into that?
3: Well, of course, I'm dating myself, but going to college in the 70s, that was at the growth of of activism across the country, both uh, anti-war activism as well as the growth of feminism. And so um, early on in college, I was influenced by several friends and colleagues who had taken on the mantle of feminism before it became a pariah and which it did in the 80s i think um and i um, again I, uh, I i talk about my father a lot because he was very influential in terms of pop, my political life and my thinking about the world and when i came home from college i was um uh, somewhat radical in my views um anti-everything and uh <laughs> A rebel? No, there you go. (laughs) And his comment was, Cecilia, there are martyrs for every cause. So you have to think very closely about whether you wish to be a martyr or whether you want to work within the system to change it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really good advice, which I took to heart.
2: Yeah. So he was supportive of of what you were doing.
3: He was the father of, of three girls. He had no choice.
2: Yeah. But that's in, it's interesting to me, because during those times, first of all, the percentage probably of women just going to college versus men was mm-hmm. not where it is today. Correct. And what was it about, um, what did you see as um, needing to be changed? What was the number one thing you s- felt needed to be changed for women at that time? Was it around education or was it around well,
3: employment? Ac- Access to education and, of course, advancement in the work world just the ability of a woman's right to craft her own future. And we're still, we're still struggling with that today, of course. Um, but obviously, I, I reap the benefit of women older than me, and young women today have reaped the benefits of women who went before them relative to the strides they made about their choices in life whether to be married or not, have children or not, take a man's name or not. All of these things were were still very new in the 70s. Um, and then I think of the suffragette movement, and we're coming up on 2020, the anniversary of the suffragette movement. Talk about people who went before us. Yes, yes. But it's interesting because you always held leadership
2: positions. Well, I, throughout I your career, want to be the boss. You <laughs> did. You did. You said it, and, and you had that opportunity, and you did it. So when you think about what's going on today versus in the 70s, where would you say we are um, as far as, I don't want to say women's empowerment, but I will say the view or perceptions of women's ability to create the life that they want, outside of, you know the home, being a mother and a wife?
3: I think that um, the employment prospects of young women are um, more bright or brighter. Uh, they they grow up believing that they have no limitations. And that helps because, and we find this true at more where young women are working together, supporting each other. I do think, however, that every political environment has the potential to influence what women and people across the board can and cannot do, what opportunities they are given. So um, the recent misogyny that we hear about in the news does not help young women, sadly. Um, and But I do think it also makes them aware of how vulnerable their 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 position is and this is good because it will strengthen them and make them ready for any challenge that they'll encounter Um, you know this idea of people um, taking advantage of women who might be more vulnerable because of their own career or their own professional development goals Um, everything that we can do to strengthen young women and to prepare them for what the world's going to be like is a good thing.
2: Yeah, this is certainly a very hot topic, and you know, it, it, every day there's a new story. Sure. Um, I, I wonder if is your view that the reason it happens is because of a position of power, um, or is it more, um, you know, a male female
3: situation? It's well, you know, it's interesting. I. We're in a college, so we're very mindful of appropriate behavior in the workplace. And there's no excuse for bad behavior, no matter what yeah. it is. Um, and I would actually reduce these things to whether something is acceptable from a social point of view or not. If someone is, is putting upon someone else advances that they do not wish to receive, then get the message. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: I think that's the good news of all of this. You know, it's it's an awful kind of discussion and topic and no one really wants to be discussing it is that I think when something blows up to this level, mm. that awareness is always the kind of the, you know, the first step to change. Absolutely. And now women um, can say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to play this game or, you know, this is not something that I have to go along with. And, They can do that without fear of any repercussions.
3: Well, I would prefer always to focus on what someone brings to the table in terms of their talents and abilities. And forget the other stuff. It's noise.
2: Yes, yes. Tell me um, a defining professional moment that you've had.
3: Hmm. Well, um, we're full of self-doubt, right? That's just how we are. Um, And I would say that along the way, People investing in me by believing that I could do things that I never expected to be able to do has been strengthening so that's that's a developmental moment if you will mm-hmm. but one of the key moments was when I was working with the state legislature in Delaware and um, my job was to um, testify in front of the legislature now I'm very fair So I blush very easily, and the red was going from my neck all the way up to my forehead. Um, And someone asked me a question I didn't know the answer to. It was about a particular element of our state appropriation. And I sat there and thought, what am I going to say? I don't know the answer. And then I said, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer, but I will get back to you by this afternoon. And they said... Fair enough. That was a defining moment because it said to me, "You don't have to have all the answers mm-hmm. all the time, and yes. to be honest and truthful, gets more currency than faking it." Yes,
2: that's really a, a, a great, great lesson. Um, we talk about that often on the show. Never be afraid to say, "I don't know," mm-hmm. and that is received so much better uh,
3: than, as you said, you know, just kind of pretending. Well, when I was teaching leadership at Drexel, this issue of credibility is very, very, very important. So doing what you say you'll do is absolutely essential to someone being perceived as a leader that people will trust. So the ability to say, I don't know, only adds to your credibility because it reinforces the fact that you're willing to admit that you don't know.
2: And confident enough to say it.
3: Precisely. Yeah,
2: precisely. So um, you spent time advising the dean at Drexel um, on matters of curriculum development and policy. I wanted to know what changes in universities across the country. would you like to see for the younger generation coming in? I think just before the show, we were talking briefly about the fact that my son is at Drexel and they have a co-op program there, and that's a wonderful way to get some real-world experience before going out into the world. And uh, there's a lot of talk today around our educational system and, and what's working and what's not. Is there something in particular that you would like to see changed Um, In universities across the country
3: of course running a college. I'm well aware of what it takes to Institute change Mm. and the larger institutions make it. it, It's harder for them. It's like turning the titanic Um, (laughs) Because they're behemoths in many cases but the best ones and I would include Drexel among them is um, they are responsive to trends and this responsiveness is what keeps institutions of higher learning relevant. So the ability to be responsive to trends in the world and to work to help to make sure that the students know what to anticipate becomes very important. Now here's the challenge. I, we have a cutting-edge piece of software right now in design for graphic designers. Yes, we can teach that. But by the time they graduate, it'll be obsolete. That's right. So Or uh, before. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so the challenge is, how can you be responsive to such a dynamic world? Mm. And I think it's twofold. We'll teach them that software, but we'll also teach them the critical thinking skills to be able to address any software, any challenge that comes across to them. Mm. So um, when I was speaking to one of our students, she said, I went out to California to do an internship, and they said to me, use this program. I'm sorry, Susan, I don't remember which one it is. Yeah. And I said, she said, I didn't know that. And I said, how do you learn? She said, I YouTubed it. Yeah, there and, you go. And, and so what that says to me is that the professors at Moore are helping her be responsive, turn on the dime, be a self-learner, and really, fundamentally, in this world of information, that's our primary job. Mm.
2: That falls under, you know, personal development and being able to adapt to mm-hmm. situations, right? Um, I think that's so critical because of the uh, the speed of which things are changing today.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And and uh, and the affordability, as far as universities, the affordability of um, being responsive, because are cha- especially when you talk about software. Um, how do you implement, you know, these these networks, and then find out that there's something even better out there? Sure, sure. Yeah.
3: Well, just a moment about the affordability, if I may, because everybody talks about, oh, colleges are so expensive. Yes. So when I was going to school in 1970, bloop, <laughs> <laughs> um, the the federal government spent an enormous amount of money subsidizing education, public education, and private education through research grants. The feds don't do that anymore. Only the National Institute of Health and, and Science um, do the kind of subsidy that I'm talking about. What that did was that, in absence of state funding, left a huge gap in the, in the cost of higher education. And that gap is what we have now had to fill, which is why higher education is so much more expensive than it used to be. So when we hear people say it's so expensive, it's so expensive, we look at bridging that gap to deliver high and good quality education. And then if you look at private schools, they are also giving an enormous amount of dollars in scholarship to the students who deserve it the most. So, it's a combination of the two things. Um, I would like nothing more for everyone to look at this more critically and understand the backstory of it. Do you
2: see any time where um, tuition will be coming down? I mean, there's a great part of the population that really just can't afford it. Absolutely.
3: So, if you adjust for cost of living increases, tuition and private institutions in Pennsylvania has actually stayed stable, if not decreased a little bit. I know it, it doesn't look like that from your bill for your son. Right. But in fact, um, adjusted for that, we have not increased our, our costs that much. But think of it as any other company. I've got folks who work for me, and they've got to get paid, and they expect to raise I have no idea where that's going to come from. Mm. If we cannot continue to adjust the costs, now what needs to change? Um, well, the uh, the idea that there are philanthropic dollars that are coming to higher education become all the more important because that's where we give students uh, the chance to come to school. In other words, if someone contributes to more, I make sure that the student who can afford it gets that money so they can go to college.
2: Do you you see a combination of um, online learning and and campus learning as an
3: option? Yes, but online learning, uh, without getting too involved, is not cheaper. It's actually more expensive. The, The thing that's cheaper about online learning is the facilities. You don't have them. But the level of pay be very crass to professors to teach online courses is higher than the classroom learning because they have so much more work to do think of it this way if i'm standing in front of a classroom and somebody asks a question i can answer that question if i'm online dealing with 25 students in the class and one person asks a question There'll be 25 questions. It Mm -hmm. will take me that much much longer to answer the question. So that's why online education is not the cost-saving element that we thought. Mm -hmm. Where I think that cost savings relative to education will come in is in sharing and collaborating. So right now we're looking to collaborate with some higher educational institutions to control, not lower, our costs relative to delivering some of the courses that we may not be expert at. So um, the basic course is what you would call your gen ed, your Mm -hmm. uh, writing 101. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I have a collaborative opportunity with someone to teach that course much less expensively than we can do. Those Mm -hmm. are the kinds of things that I see in the future of higher
2: ed. We could probably do a whole show on we different, could. right? Different ways to do yes. that, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, we're actually we're going to take a break for our sponsors, and when we come back, I, I would love for you to share with our listeners um, a very personal um, event that took place in your life uh, a year ago. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, this is Michael Bertoni, founder and CTO of Philly Tech. I'm throwing the first annual Philly Tech Community Holiday Party at CODA in Rittenhouse Square, Philadelphia on Wednesday, December 13th from 6 to 9 p.m. This party will be a celebration of technology and innovation happening throughout the greater Philadelphia region, and everyone is invited. You'll have the opportunity to learn more about the tech scene in Philly, network and praise our achievements, while giving back to littles within Big Brothers Big Sisters of Philadelphia. 20% of the dollars raised in the event will go towards buying holiday gifts for littles in Big Brothers Big Sisters and putting a big smile on their faces during the holidays. Here's what you can expect at the holiday party. We'll kick off with a live comedy show called Good Joke, Bad Joke, Bingo by comedian Sean Wickens. The first 100 people to arrive go into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Enjoy free open bar, free buffet, and DJ from 6 to 9 p.m. Tickets are only $20 on Eventbrite by searching in Philadelphia for first annual Philly Tech community holiday party or going to my website at phillytech.co. Make sure it's phillytech.co. Looking forward to seeing you there.
4: This is Kristen Hilsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. All available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhilsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at Group.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to fullyhilsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y group.com or call Since 1858,
2: Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk860, and Womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Cecilia Fitzgibbon. Cecilia is the president of the Moore College of Art and Design here in Philadelphia. And uh, if you're listening, real quick, I want to give our call-in number in case you're listening and you have a question for Cecilia. You can call the show at 888 329 3306. That's 888-329-3306. So as I mentioned just before the break, um, this is a very, I would say, um, defining moment in your life, an event that took place um, in June of 2016. And um, I'd love for you to share with our listeners what happened and and how you are
3: facing this challenge today. Sure. So um, I have been the president of Moore College for six years, but a couple of years ago I was starting to feel poorly, so I'd go to these fancy events and get sick, and went to my doctor, who's a wonderful woman, and said, this isn't right. So she put me through this series of DI tests, and nothing came back, and she said to me, Cecilia, I want you to have an MRI on your brain. So that's ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with my brain, poor woman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the smartest one in this room. Right. <laughs> right. And so um, on a Monday, I was having an MRI in May. On the Wednesday, she called me and said, I'm sorry, you have a brain tumor. On Thursday, I was he- meeting with the head of neurosurgery at Penn. And the following week, I was having brain surgery. And... Um, mm-hmm. And they, uh, there was a 5.5-centimeter um, tumor wrapped around my brain stem. Um, so when I woke up with my boys at my side, my husband, I could not speak, I could not see, I could not walk, and I could not swallow. Um, I wrote my son a note saying, how am I going to run to college when I can't talk? Mm-hmm. So that was a year and a half ago. and. Um, I'm still in recovery. my voice sounds thicker than it once did, and of course, my vision is still and balance are still impaired. But mm. I've been back to work for the last, oh gosh, since a year ago, September. Yeah.
2: That first of all, that what a wake-up call, something that would happen so suddenly to you, right? Um, when you immediately got the news, where did your, where did
3: your mind go? Was it, you know, I'm laughing because I said to my senior staff, I'll be back in three weeks. I have to have brain surgery and I'll be back in three weeks. (laughs) So obviously, obviously, I did not spend time doing the research that I should have, because in my mind, all you have to do is power through anything. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't power through this one. That's right. Um, So was that a lesson you needed to learn? Yes, and the other lesson that I'm thinking I should have learned is how to be patient, but it's not working. So, <laughs> it's very interesting, though. There, my son, my younger son had um, Gabby Gifford come to be a speaker at his commencement. And, of course, he was impacted in the brainstem exactly where I have McDuma. And my second son graduated from UVA. So the reason I couldn't have surgery right away is I had to go to his graduation at UVA for grad school. And the, a young woman who was speaking there had had a tumor when she was going through school, graduate school there. So all of this is some grand cosmic design that I have yet to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one, one enlightening piece of all of this is that that I can't fix everything, so I've had to step back and let people let people do for me
4: mm.
3: in a way that I never would have before. It's it's very humbling.
2: Yeah. Tell me, why do you think that was a lesson you needed to learn?
3: Well, I told you I want to be the boss. <laughs> <laughs> so so there is a there is, is a there level a con- of control. Control. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and um, there's a bigger force out there, mm. but I was very fortunate to have good care, and the love and care of my family, and that made a huge difference. Tell
2: tell me about your boys. You you mentioned them. You have two sons, and I have two and sons. You're married, and yeah, <clears throat> how, or obviously, I'm sure they're proud of you. How do you talk to them? What kind of conversations do you have with them around, um, yeah, women and 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 girls in their
3: lives and the treatment of them and. You're that's an a, example, but, yeah. That's a really good question, really good question. So my oldest son is 30, and um, his girlfriend of about six years now is a physician's assistant, has a master's degree unto herself, and currently works at Mass General, which is Harvard, in Boston. She is no slouch, this young woman. Yet, it, it's very. I watch him. He's very respectful toward her. Having come right from Thanksgiving, of course, um, I, I have had a chance to watch the two of them. My second son is 27, and it's very clear that his girlfriend is quite the feminist. Mm. So um, I have taught both of the boys. They, they've grown up expecting nothing less than women to be competent, intelligent, and articulate. And um, the arguments around our, our dining room table... When the, when the young women come to dinner for the first time, I think they're a bit intimidated. And, of course, I'm sitting there going, go ahead, speak up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, stand on the table, right. right, and That's recite right. whatever exactly. you want. Exactly, you
3: go for it. That's right. Oh, I love
2: that. Um, I, I read a quote you said uh, in another interview Um, pertaining to, um, you know, the importance and something that women should focus on as leaders. Cultivate your network and don't dress like a man. Wear color.
3: (laughs) Is that a mantra of yours? Well, it's, it's certainly a signature. And being in an art and design school, I'm very fortunate because I wear color and people embrace it. I think that we have to really be okay with being women. And that means not not, not looking like men. Um, and there was when I was in the 80s, when I was developing my career, everyone wore blue or black suits with white mm. shirts and little things that looked like ties. And at some, at some point, I said, no way, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Um, and that I'm not a beautiful person, but I enjoy art and, and I enjoy color. You then, are a beautiful person, by the way. <laughs> well, <and I laughs> yes, think, you are. And I think that young women and women uh, uh, per se should not have to prescribe to fashion as dictated for another gender. That's right. So
2: unless, so, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. If you are comfortable in a pinstripe suit and a and a white right. shirt, you wear that. Go for it. If right. you want a polka dot dress. Right. If that's where you're comfortable, you do that. Yes.
3: And of course, it's it's different in my environment, higher ed Mm. than it was or nonprofit organizations. Very different than it is in the corporate world. So I would recommend that people in the corporate world, young women, start looking for places where they can insert a bit of their personality yeah. without looking like they could be fired for not wearing the company <laughs> <Yeah>. suit. <laughs>
2: Appropriate, but right, right. Um, you know, personal to them. Um, tell me what, how important is transparency for a leader within any organization?
3: So I told you that I taught leadership and credibility is very important. Credibility is fundamental in that transparency is part of that. So being upfront about what is happening and communicating that, I think, is absolutely critical. So in, in the college world, there have been times when we have made decisions that people there will say, uh-huh, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example, we've renovated our dining hall. The, 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 it was fine, it was perfectly functional, but we did it because we knew that the expectations of people coming to college had a certain, had a certain elevated expectation. Mm-hmm. And we, we wanted to attract students.
2: That goes back to being
3: responsive to trends, exactly, doesn't it? Exactly, yes. exactly, exactly. Yes. So I took it upon myself to explain to the people who worked at Moore why we were doing this. I think it's respectful of your employees. To be able to explain the backstory, because they're not—they're priv- not sitting around that table saying, "What's the priority? What do we need to do? How much is this going to cost?" And so, after every board meeting, what we do is we have an all-college meeting where we go through the agenda that happened at the board, and we—we t- we give them the financials. We tell them exactly what the numbers look like, mm-hmm. what the issues are, because in order to get people. To enter into the contract, it's a contract when someone works at Moore. They have a contract with the institution that says, "I will do my hardest work if you treat me with respect mm-hmm. and give me information." That's what why transparency is so important,
2: and also making them feel a part of, of the course. organization and what's going on. Of course, right? of course. Yeah do you do you have a, a mantra as a leader or a philosophy, something that you live by
3: yes of course (laughs) Um, i would say that my role as a leader is to remove all the barriers and to provide the resources necessary for someone to do their work so my job is to get out of their way and to invest in the expertise of people who then invest in the expertise of their teams and the best thing I can do is make sure that they have all the right things to do their job well. Um, the other thing that I like to do, and this was um, something that someone said to me once. They said, I, I take all the blame and I give all the credit away. So you will very, I'm, I'm using the word more, I more, today than I usually do. I usually talk about we. Because it's not about me. It's about the people who are doing the work at Moore. So this idea that they deserve the credit is very important. But if something goes wrong, and I would encourage them to take risks, so if something goes wrong, the buck stops with me. Mm. And I'm happy to take the the heat and give them the credit when something goes right.
2: I want to go back for a minute. We we talked so briefly about your surgery and coming back from that, and that was fairly recent. And in talking about transparency, did you take some time when you came back to be transparent with the people that you work with and the students to address what you had gone through before kind of just diving right back
3: in? So my first appearance was at giving the commencement speech, which is in September, and I was just had been or actually late August. So I had just been released from the hospital. And I wasn't speaking even as clearly as you can understand me now. But I gave the commencement speech. And um, then prior to the commencement speech, I sent to the community, not the students, um, the story. I told them all the story. Here's what happened. While I was away, I did not share the story because I did not want the college to be harmed. But when I got back, it was very clear I was going to stick around, so um, I thought that they should know why is Cecilia speaking in this manner? Why is she walking? Why isn't she walking at the time? Um, Then I asked the dean of students to share with the students what was going on with me. So by the end of August in 2016, everyone in the community knew what was going on. And um, interestingly enough, i would have asked the question can you do it can you run the college Mm -hmm. after getting recovering from brain surgery because there was no cancer and they had gotten the tumor i was going to be all right the Mm. the recovery was going to take a long time Mm. um but because of the wonderful people who were there and the students susan it's so wonderful these young women Hi, how are you? Are you okay? (laughs) It's like I have 500 daughters. Right, right, right. (laughs) So it was really a wonderful thing to come back. And there is a reason to get better.
2: Yeah. You know, I I didn't ask you about a personal defining moment, but I'm going to
3: guess that it it was around this incident. Is that true? I have to say, I'll never forget this one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so personally, I keep struggling with asking why not not why did this happen to me, but what am I supposed to learn from mm. this? Yes, um, yes. what what should I take away? And um, this idea of tolerance is one. Um, I think when in my next life, I'll become a an advocate for people with disabilities because I've encountered some ex- I have experienced more than I ever thought possible. Yes. And so here I am. I'm used to being somebody that um, you know charges right in and takes command. Well, when you can't walk in and you don't speak well, people make assumptions about your abilities. Mm. And this has been a, uh, an eye-opener for me about working with people with disabilities who probably have far um, solid intellectual capacity. They clearly have a lot of capacity, a lot of things to give. And as a society, we do them a great disservice. Don't judge a book by its cover. Exactly.
2: Right. Do you have any aspirations to address any of that in this life? Or is, there, yeah. is being president of the Moore College of Art enough for you?
3: Well, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, everything has its end and everything has its beginning. So yeah. um, I, I have found, <laughs> much the consternation of my family, That um, when we go out in public, that I make sure that everyone knows what's going on. (laughs) So I'll ask, are you, do you have accessibility? And, of course, some folks are bound by the history of their building. They they can't. Mm. Others just don't pay attention, and this is unconscionable.
2: Have you done research on the brain because of what's happened to you, just out of curiosity? Well,
3: I know more about the brain than I ever did before, that's for sure. But it's so impressive to see these young people who are brain surgeons. And you look at them and say, does your mother know you're practicing medicine? They're so young. But they're so full of promise. It's remarkable. And on the team that I had, half of the team were, were women. These women are, their brain surgeons. Mm. So it's pretty, it doesn't get any harder than that. Right, yeah, it's exciting. Um,
2: is there something you can tell me that we would not know about you, that we might be surprised
3: to know? Well, <laughs> I'm an amateur poet. Um, I'm, yes. uh, lately I've taken <clears throat> to writing poetry as a way of attempting to, um, I don't know, elegantly or alternatively, describe the, con- the circumstances of what's going on in my life. Mm. Um, and it's been a great outlet. So I, I, I write the poems, and then I send them to my kids. My second son went to Bard, so he's very attuned to the written word, and he's a composer himself. <laughs> so the first one I sent to him, he said, Mom, have you become a poet overnight? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> Was he impressed? So, well, he said, I said, well... First of all, before I answer that question, what do you think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he said, um, I think they're good. Mm-hmm. And then went on to give me instructions as to how to make them better. Oh, of
2: course. <laughs> well, what, where does the inspiration for the poetry come from?
3: Well, I've always been in love with the written word. Mm-hmm. I, am, I think of myself as having um, aspiring to have a command of the English language, so uh, writing becomes another method for communicating. Writing poetry, of course, is an art- artistic outlet, so, which I've discovered in my 60s, so who knew, right? Yeah.
2: Do you think there's a right or wrong in no. in poetry?
3: No, and and I hope that an English professor isn't listening because certainly they would recommend that, that one study before one attempt to write. And I can respect that. but yeah. this is this is a personal outlet. I doubt that the New Yorker is going to pick me up and you never soon.
2: Know. You know. When do you find yourself most wanting to write? In is the it morning. the same?
3: In the morning? The Every weekends, morning?
2: on the weekends. Weekends mm-hmm. morning.
3: Sunday morning and Saturday morning. Yep. Yeah, when I have a minute.
2: So that's therapeutic and and an outlet for you. Is there something else that you enjoy doing when you're away from the desk?
3: Um, Well, um, I'm a cook, and I enjoy that. I love to travel, and uh, my husband and I are planning to do more. We had a trip planned when I was having my surgery. So, of course, um, now I have to think about how can I get around Mm. And um, this is not something I ever thought about before. So, yeah. kind of thinking about the travel. We are, the students are studying abroad in Morocco in January. And so, I will be going with some colleagues, some of our board members, t- uh, to Morocco to observe and work with the students while they're there. I'm very excited about mm. that. It'll be great.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: is there a leader that you admire? That's a really good question. So, you know, people start thinking about leadership as a positional authority, or they think of people who are larger than life, you know, the Martin Luther King Juniors, et cetera. And um, so I don't have one of those folks. I have seen leadership in different places. And it's much like beauty. It emerges when you're very surprised. So I would say that the, um, the people who run my board right now are so inspiring as leaders. And here's what they do that makes them this way. They listen mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. They, um, they will recognize the expertise of others. And they are very respectful and fundamentally... They have a sense of humor, mm-hmm. which goes a long way.
2: It does. You know, taking ourselves too
3: seriously
2: is never a good thing. Well,
3: uh, you can get more with humor. You can shut down controversy. You can make people feel welcome and comfortable with humor in a way that you cannot otherwise. Yeah.
2: Is Do you have a, um, a proud moment in your role as president, a, a moment that you're just incredibly proud of and we're excited about well sure it
3: happens every May when they when we have commencement yeah I don't mean to to be um indirect about your answer but there is something unbelievable about standing at the podium and watching these young women come down I I cry every every single graduation I cry and I never went to either of my graduations. <laughs> so I suppose it's a bit like Groundhog Day. But <laughs> um, but the, the fact that they are beginning the next part of their life is so inspiring. Mm. And so that, that has been a seminal moment. The other thing, of course, is that um, we've managed to raise a lot of money for scholarships. And this has been a source of great pride. And one particular personal thing is that I had a donor from the Collins call me and say, Cecilia, I want to start a Cecilia Fitzgibbon scholarship. Oh, that's so there's wonderful. one in my name, Yeah,
2: and that's as that's, that's good as it gets. That's very special. Is there a student who comes to mind as someone who, who's gone on to do great things? I, I know there's probably many, but any recent?
3: Um, so recently we've had um, Dom Streeter, who, won, uh, who was a grad, who won Project Runway. Yes. And uh, in fact, she has is the only African-American woman who's won Project Runway. And then she won Project Runway All-Stars. So, wow. And, and, and Dom wouldn't have gone to more had we not given her a scholarship. Mm. She was working at Silk City as a waitress and decided she wanted to be a fashion designer. So we were the we were the jumping off point for yeah. her career, that that makes you feel good. That's yeah. okay. You can you can go home and do the dishes on the night that Dom wins Project Runway.
2: <laughs> um, we just have a moment left. I'd love for you to just uh, mention quickly about a there's a um, a show coming in January called Art of the Gorilla Girls. Yes, and I- you can speak more intelligently about them and and what they do than I can.
3: Well, I'd like to invite all of your listeners to come to the opening of that show on January 19th at more from 5 to 8. And then the show will be up until March 17th, beyond that. The Guerrilla Girls were a group that was founded in, in the 70s of women who took the opportunity to make art about women and their position in the art world. So it's political. And the reason they're called the gorilla girls is that they are, they are gorillas as in guerrilla warfare. They use the content of their art to um, attack the, um, or comment about um, the infrastructure of the art world. So they're wonderful. The other thing that they do is they're anonymous. So you don't know who they are. Mm. They fear reprisal. So they come in anonymously, they present their work. They also wear gorilla masks, so there's a double entendre there. (laughs) But um, anyone in the audience is welcome to come to Moore to see the show. Mm -hmm. And um, this is really perfectly aligned with our mission as the only all-women's art and design college in the country. So it works.
2: Wonderful. I'm going to make sure to, to come by and see that. It's been so wonderful to have you, Cecilia. Thank you, Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day My to pleasure. share your story. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net, N E T. Have a great week.